guys welcome back to the right type today i'm here with leah johnson who is the author of you should see me in a crown i had such a fun time catching up with leah she's so hilarious and her book is amazing and you should all buy it i'm gonna leave the link in the description um and the show notes on my blog you might hear a little bit of background noise and the reason for that is because i broke into my friend adiba's hotel room and um locked her in her closet and used her room to record this episode and so Adiba's trying to get out and I wasn't letting her until I finished the episode which is why you may hear her moving about. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it and we're gonna just jump straight in. Okay so Leah could you just introduce yourself to everyone tell us about you and your book and just everything. Yeah so I'm Leah Johnson my debut novel You Should See Me in a Crown is out on June 2nd 2020 from Scholastic It's about a girl named Liz Lighty who's growing up black, queer, and poor in a town that is anything but black, queer, and poor. And so she's always felt like an outsider. And because of that, her dream is to get out of Dodge. Um, And her plan is to go to college and become a doctor, and it's going to be great. Um, Until her financial aid falls through, and then she's no longer able to go to her dream school until she realizes there's a scholarship attached to being prom queen and so even though it's the last thing she wants to do as a deeply anxious very like quietly queer person um she decides to run because it's more important to her to uh get to achieve her dream than to um stay silent in her hometown and along the way she ends up falling for her competition. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I love it. I feel like I should like play it every time you say something cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the uh, dance hall air horns or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, your book just sounds literally like everything I love. Um, I'm so excited for it. I think it's going to be like one of my favorite books. Oh my goodness, that's such high praise. Thank you. This is like an incredible year. So I feel really lucky that people are still excited about the book. Oh yeah, it's been a really interesting year and I'm praying for everyone that everything goes well and like we get rid of this thing very soon. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you know, like every, I don't want to speak for everybody, but almost every debut I know is already like super, super on edge about like how their book is going to perform. And what nobody had on the 2020 debut bingo card was that we would be dealing with a pandemic in the middle of like all of our tours and promo. And so um, this is, it's like terrifying on like a massive scale, like in a a very real way, this is terrifying. Um, But like just on a much smaller, like more selfish level, it's also like, wow, okay, well, I didn't even know to bring this up to my therapist, but I guess we'll be talking about it next time. Oh my gosh, and I wonder if people can even go to see the therapist. I guess, I mean, we have technology, so maybe they can have, like, video calls, but there's just so much affected. Um, right. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. I can't believe it. I, could, I would never have guessed this would be an obstacle for a debut to have to face. Right, I... Uh, nobody prepares you. It's not, like, for most of us, I don't know what it's like. Um, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but I know in the US, most of us aren't getting a pandemic uh, preparation course next to our bio class or our history class. So now I know we should have been <laughs> we should have been readying ourselves for this. 
Actually, we learn about the Black Death, but like briefly, is that what it's called? Black Death. It's Black Death. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I think it's interchangeable, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we learn about that. But like, it seems like something that was kind of in the past when technology was bad. But like, I never expected this. Um, yeah, just wild and. Uh, yeah, a nightmare. <laughs> like we just never. I don't feel like. We have an adequate, I mean, in a lot of ways, our, our system of public education in this country is, like, woefully inadequate, and there is no real equity, et cetera, et cetera. But in addition to that, I don't even think that I had the proper context for, like, how to think about what a pandemic is or what it could do, potentially. And so um, a lot of this is just, like, uh, retroactive, like, wow, I definitely should have learned about this, the history of this thing before I got caught in the middle of a modern day crisis. I feel that. My publisher did author training for like just preparing you for like things you may expect to come up and also just handling the things that are unexpected. Um, really? Wow, that's so, that's like, that's big time stuff. Like, they don't really. Um, that's like media training for like first time stars who are going on uh, going on their press junkets and stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, exactly. We had like, it was a really great time. Like there was a lot of free food and like we had an actress come in and teach us how to speak. And um, it was just crazy. It was like two weeks of cool activities and stuff. Um, but they never prepared us for a pandemic. So I guess that's the one thing um, that they were missing from the training. Right, they were not, we weren't really anticipating that. And so I think like, but I also think, you know, for for all the things that this is like throwing off course and like, um, I mean, like there are real dire consequences to this, obviously. But I think like as far as publishing is concerned, I think this may be able to like reframe what is and is not possible you know like a lot of people are excluded from publishing because they can't afford to live in new york or because um the community is not as inclusive as it could be because of cost or location or like any of those things and i think like if we can move the entire industry to telework over the course of this pandemic then like maybe we can open up this industry to people who can't be in New York for whatever reason. So I'm hoping that like this is able to uh, this is able to have some positive effects as well. I hope that it kind of works with other industries and just like generally employment because um, there are a lot of people who are kept out of employment because people claim that you can't do things remotely but obviously this is showing that things can be done remotely so um Hopefully it's teaching people. And also it's just so sad because it's showing that the government have ways of being accommodating to people who are like low income or people that um, are disabled, for example, but they just never wanted to until we had to go through a pandemic. So it's just so sad that this is what has had to kind of make them create like programs and like alternative things for people right and not even not even to get too in the weeds on this because eventually we'll go back to talking about the book or books in general but like i just money is fake right like that's the thing like this is all all of this is fake with a snap of somebody's fingers we can we can allocate 1.5 trillion dollars to um bailing out big banks if that's possible then i don't ever want to hear somebody ask me like 
where are we going to get the money for universal health care? Like, how could we forgive student debt? How could we allow kids to go to college for free? And, no, no, no. The money is there. Like, all these things exist. We have the resources to create adequate social safety nets, but we have chosen, and by we, I mean the government, I mean the 1%, I mean people who are not being taxed in the way they should be taxed. They have the resources to ensure that nobody goes hungry or homeless or you know any myriad of social issues and they have chosen not to until it comes knocking on their door and so i just i really hope that like because we're in an election year i i hope that people remember this when they go to the polls in november that like your government has made multiple decisions that could have protected you and chose not to until it affected them directly and that's Oh, I don't know. What I'm saying is vote Bernie Sanders. Um, <laughs> that's my that's my soapbox. I really hope that they don't make you have to vote for Biden because he's an evil man. Oh my gosh! This and it's such a difficult conversation to have because, like, I, I mean, like, I like I initially um, Bernie was not my first choice. I I wanted to vote for Elizabeth Warren, who, like, you know say what you will about her but like at the very least I felt as though I could look to Elizabeth Warren and she was like listening to black women who were bringing up very serious issues to us and everybody's always like oh let black women save the world oh black women have all the answers if only we listen to black women but y'all don't listen to black women that's the problem and so we finally had a candidate who was like yeah no I'm, I'm hearing you I'm trying to I'm trying to get with it and they're like no 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 not you not you though we don't really want that but now, you know, if you want to vote for a true progressive, you want somebody who's, like, in line with those same principles about, like, you know, uplifting the most marginalized among us, then it feels to me as though there's no real choice about who to vote for. But that is not the conversation that, uh, that's not the conversation that seems to be happening on my Twitter timeline, so. Oh, Twitter, you know, what a terrible place. Right, and real hellscape, honestly, in a lot of ways. But, like, moving on to something that can be equally depressing. Um, what was your publishing journey like? Uh, you know what? It is. It, it can be really depressing to hear about people's road to publishing because um, it's so exclusionary for so many of us. Um, I have to say, though, that I was very, very fortunate in that like, my journey was incredibly um, painless. So I went to grad school right out of undergrad I had studied journalism and African-American studies my undergrad and in my senior year I just got the sense that it telling stories and the way I was telling them was not satisfying to me anymore I was really angry all the time I felt sad more often than not and I just I knew that I wanted to do something with writing that had social utility but I knew that I couldn't keep working in a newsroom because the way that that felt to me was just it was just untenable and so um I decided I would go and get my MFA and if nothing else it would buy me two years where I could figure out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to write and um so I ended up at Sarah Lawrence um and worked on my MFA in fiction writing and while I was there, I got to, you know, essentially find my voice, which sounds like a really hokey thing, but it was true for me at the time. And it did buy me the time that I um, 
I was searching for. Now, was that time very expensive? Yes, it was. And who knows how many books I have to sell in order to get myself out of student debt. But um, I was in my second semester of my second year, and I had like a two-year plan ahead of me. I was like, okay, I'm going to finish this book. That is my thesis. I'm going to polish it up. I'm going to query agents for X amount of months, and then hopefully I'm going to work on this. I'm going to edit it with my agent for X amount of months, and then we're going to go on sub for X amount of months, and then hopefully buy 2021 at the earliest is in this timeline that was the earliest that i could envision maybe having a book deal and um this was 2018 at the time and so i was like working on the book but i was also freelancing on the side like paying some essays um just to like pay my bills and i wrote an essay for electric lit um about like the lack of diversity in YA. It was called um, How YA uh, Taught Me to Love Like a White Girl. And I was talking about uh, essentially like all these love stories that I had been raised on, like all of my favorite writers like growing up had written these books that were hailed as like this universal experience, but none of them ever had characters at the center who looked like me or felt like me or had families like mine. And so um, I wrote this piece and the response was overwhelming. And mind you, this was like the first major essay I had ever published, major, semi-major essay I had ever published. And so when it went up, I was like, oh, great, I did it. I got a check coming. Like, and the check was not very much, but I was like, oh, I'm making big money now. <laughs> and um, that day, I like went to class I went to my assistant ship I was just gonna carry on as usual and I like went and checked my emails um and like I had been contacted by um a couple agents um a couple editors somebody from a book packaging company had reached out to me about it like there was just a lot of interest in this essay that was like really shocking to me um and one of the emails that I'd gotten was from the person who became my current agent. Um, and she was like, you know, I read this, I read your essay. I thought it was really great. Um, I'm wondering if you're working on anything essentially that like rectifies the problems that you're identifying. She's like, I really would like to talk to you about it if you are. And I was like, Oh, bet it up because I'm a poor grad student. I'm literally like working my tail off trying to make something happen and I was like, oh, bet. She was like, okay, cool. Come on down to Wall Street, which is where our offices are, and we'll talk about the book. And so um, I went down, I met with her. This is like the longest explanation of my publishing journey. I could have given you the abridged version. But anyway, I go down there, I meet with her, um, and I like her vibe, I like her energy. Um, but I didn't sign with her right away because the book that I was working on for my thesis wasn't done. And to be honest, now in retrospect, I would probably never pull the book out of a drawer again. Um, but I worked on it. I sent it to her. She's like, okay, you know, like let's polish this up. Like let's stay in touch. And not even like two weeks later, I get another email from her. Um, where she says like, um, you know, I met with an editor at Scholastic recently who was interested in telling a story like the one you're interested in telling. And I said, you might be the writer for it. And so um, 
that was that was that like I got looped into a project I like submitted some sample pages um we took the book to acquisitions essentially um on a proposal like it was a couple pages and a synopsis for a book and that was it so this this all happened for me very upside down it wasn't um it did not happen in the way that it happens for most people that's just so cool i I love hearing i just love hearing everybody's story because i don't think i've had people tell the same story twice so it's just so interesting because you all come from different backgrounds some of us get rejected hundreds of times some of us like i have a friend her current agent was also her professor um so it's just so cool because like everyone has a different i don't know journey um so thank you for sharing that that was so interesting um and i guess you kind of answered the the next question which is what inspired you to write um you should see me in a crown but maybe you can maybe elaborate more on maybe um how your character relates to you and um specifically things in the book that relate to your experience or what you wanted to see in a book yeah so i knew um always even with my uh hot garbage like thesis novel um that the kind of work that I was interested in doing was going to be really grounded in the kind of work that I wish I had had access to when I was the age of my characters. And so um, I knew that I wanted something set in a town that was very similar to the hometown that I grew up in. I knew that I wanted a protagonist who was dealing with things um, that were similar to the things that I dealt with. So I came, I I grew up in a, a single parent household for a good chunk of my life. And even when uh, my birth father was at home, it very much felt as though like my mom was the one uh, holding our family together. So I really only looked to one parent for most of my life. And so um, I knew that I wanted a story where the main character came from a sort of non-traditional family structure. So um, Liz is raised by her grandparents. Um, her and her little brother are raised by her grandparents and her granddad is like, um, not able to work. So her grandmother is the primary breadwinner in the family. And, um, which means that she lives in a town full of people who like, don't understand, um, like what a huge class disparity there is between them. So she has these friends who like, all are in families with two parents and both the parents have great jobs and they're making a lot of money and Liz doesn't have a car but all of her friends have cars and Liz doesn't know how she's going to pay for a dress to homecoming or prom but all of her friends that's not even a question that they have to ask and so um it was just really important to me that all of those things were like right there um underneath the surface of this story that like they're are people who live right next door to each other, but their experiences in that community are going to be wildly different from one another. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of the vehicle that drove Crown, and I knew that I wanted a story in which, like, somebody who has all of those things, um, where it feels like all these things are, like, counting against them in all these ways, I wanted that kid to get the, get the, girl at the end I wanted them to get the happy ending I wanted them to get out I wanted them to find joy um 
and so yeah that was that was where crown really came from and what you were saying about the class disparities and how people that are literally next to each other um are going through just different things um with money and life experiences and just what they stress about being so different such an important thing i think i love seeing that so i love seeing that in books because it's real life like i love seeing it in the hate you give how there was literally a school and a neighborhood that was a short distance that was just a different world um to where star was living and also just in the uk or london to be specific i don't know if you heard about grenfell tower um that's in like the richest um city in like not city what would you call it borough yeah it's in the richest borough in the whole of the uk um where there's literally billionaires living there and then there's a lot of people in these really small unsafe apartment buildings that are just awful and a lot of them are undocumented or they have jobs or lives that are really difficult um and so yeah it's just such a interesting thing and i'm really happy to see that in books so thank you yeah i just feel like a lot of times like and and i think you and i have talked about this before about like the ways that uh young adult novels are often like sanitized to make things much cleaner and more simple than the way they look in the world and so like one thing that's really important to me in crown and but in also all of my books is to, which is something I can say now because <laughs> Scholastic is like, just keep going, I guess. Um, one of the things that's like most important to me is to complicate these narratives. Is to be like, you know what? Yeah, it's possible for me to live in this zip code that is incredibly privileged. And so like that grants me a certain element of privilege myself, but also there are these other things that like I have to deal with that people around me don't have to deal with that changes the way that I'm able to move through this community. Um, when I was in grad school, for instance, I went to, like I said, I went to Sarah Lawrence, which is in Bronxville, New York, which is one of the most, the richest zip codes in the United States. Um, Sarah Lawrence is the second most expensive school in the country. And so I'm at this school where I'm surrounded by a lot of students who have no idea what it means to like experience poverty in the way that I like grew up experiencing poverty and so like in this one way I have a lot of privilege because I am in this space and so that has granted me access to this type of upward mobility but also I am broke you know what I'm saying like I'm paying for this with my own money like I can't ask my parents to help I can't you know reach back and like dip into a trust fund for this like all of this is coming from like a lot of hustle and so you know I'm, I'm just really interested in that that dichotomy always like how do we reckon with our own privilege but how do we like think constantly about like how we're navigating these spaces differently yeah I agree 100% I'm currently at university as well in Scotland uh-huh. and I'm one of the only people in like my area in London that go to university a lot of people don't go because they can't afford it or um it's just not something that they've ever been told they could do um because they don't allow themselves to dream that much because there's just so much else to worry about um they don't have the capacity or like they're not ever given i don't know hope 
that they can actually achieve anything um, because teachers and people criminalize them before they even get to their age of 18. So they never feel any, yeah, they never feel like they can get to university. And so um, I get to university and there's so many people around me who their parents pay for their, they, they pay for their tuition or they pay for them to like have groceries and like, um, and like their rent. I pay for everything myself. And like, I remember I had a job from like 5 a.m. in the morning to 1 p.m. And then I'd go to uni and then I'd come back and write and I'd be so tired. And um, they just can't understand that. And all of them have cars or they have like big houses and like you're going through something at home and they they would never get it. And I realized at one point, because I'm, I don't know, you always think that all black people kind of have the same experience. Um, and then you realize the world is more nuanced than that, that we all are black people and we're all marginalized because of our race, but there's class disparities within race as well. And um, I had the assumption coming to university because I came from an area where everyone was poor and black, um, or the, if they were white, they were also poor. And so we all had kind of that solidarity. Um, so I went to university, I made this assumption, a very wrong assumption that every person that I would befriend that was black would probably be in my situation. And that was not the case at all. And so, yeah, a really big wake up call when I like saw that they lived in mansions and had no problems financially. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real slap in the face. Like to be like, oh, yo, like we are skin folk, but maybe we are not kin folk. Wow. Yeah. Cannot relate, right? <laughs> oh my god, that was an experience I had where, um, so I get like a scholarship every year because in the UK, if you like come from a fa- like if your parents make um, a certain amount, the government automatically kind of grant you a scholarship for something. It's kind of it doesn't cover wow. anything really, but it's it's a lot. Um, it's very helpful for people that have nothing. So like, um, I was telling one of my friends, and she was like, "Oh, I wish I had that. I would love the extra money." And um, I just kind of paused. (laughs) (laughs) I paused. I was like, it's not extra. It's kind of everything. Like, um, but it's just interesting because they think like their parents are making six figures. Like, it's kind of like they don't understand. I don't know. They just don't understand. They can't even fathom it. Right. It's um. You know, I I'm like thinking a lot about this now, especially because um. You know, I'm experiencing a level of, like, financial stability that I've never felt before, which comes as a byproduct of, like, the fact that I work more than one job, but also, like, have, like, advances that come in now. Um, And I'm just, I'm constantly, like, wrestling with this feeling of, like, guilt, but also, like, no, I earned this, but also, like, okay, how can I pay this forward? But also, like, how do I send the elevator back down? But then again, like, how do I continue to climb up? And it's just like, I think that one of the things we don't talk about often, um, well, anywhere ever, is money, um, especially when you are used to not having any, and then suddenly, like, you do have a little bit. Um, but I think one of the other things that, like, I wish I had known when I started, uh, when I got into publishing was like how to like navigate this newfound space that I'm in this space where like I I am experiencing a different type of privilege than I have experienced before but like 
what does that really mean? And how do I save this money? And like, how do I pay taxes? And like, what am I supposed to do with money when I've never, nobody in my family has ever had any. So it's like, well, I guess I just hold on to it. Do you pay off your student loan? You know what I mean? It's just, there's a lot of dynamics to like uh, class mobility that I think um, are under explored, especially for folks, um, for folks like us. Yeah, I feel like I need to do an episode on money because there's just so much that's not discussed. And there was, a, you know, did you see that really interesting article? Um, it was on like this author who got like almost half a million dollars. Oh yeah, and blew it. Yeah, and she was talking about how she grew up poor and how having money kind of made her not know how to kind of handle it because it's overwhelming, and. Um, of course, there's other things I have to say about that, but I won't. But um, right. <laughs> I think it's very interesting because I speak to so many authors who grew up with money or authors that grew up without money and are, tr- are like now just kind of blown away either by the fact that they have to navigate for the first time in their life, not just being stabi- like stable, but actually being quite well off when mm-hmm. it's kind of become... I hate saying it because like obviously we're we're not like we're not our trauma but at the same time it kind of becomes you um and so when for so long you've just been a person who's had to fight and like hope for the next day to be a happy one or one where you're not homeless or you know fighting some type of debt um it's like it's just such a strange feeling. I've got friends that just, they just are still in shock. And it's been like maybe two years since they've gotten the offer that was life-changing or whatever. And um, it's just not discussed. And also the other part of it where I've got friends who um, grew up with money and so they get their advances, which are huge, but they're not that impressed by it. It's just interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, you know, it it is really fascinating. I 100% cannot relate to not being impressed by an advance. Like, my first advance was very modest um, by most people's standards, and I was still like, oh, bet, bet, okay, so we're going to pay all this in savings, we're going we're gonna to have savings for the first time in our life, you know what I mean? And so it's like, everything feels, you know, and just like, and not just like money stuff, but like, everything feels like the biggest thing in the world when you're used to not being able to experience like major things like that you know what I'm saying like you know being able to have a savings account was a massive deal for me when I you know I got my first check or like um every time my agent or my editor or my publicist are like oh yeah like you just got invited to this conference to do a panel with this person that you've admired your entire life like these things feel so surreal to me that everything you know, everything still feels tenuous to me. Like, I feel like, oh, man, like, all this could slip away at any time. So, like, I better ride this wave for as long as I can. And every time I say something like that, my editor's like, Leah, it's not slipping away. Like, we're, we just, remember when we gave you, like, we just signed you up for another book, like, a couple months ago. You remember when we did that? This is, like, this is real. We're doing this. (laughs) And so, yeah, this whole, this whole thing is wild publishing is a really wild journey in ways that i just did not anticipate and the thing is your mentality is just i think how people of color feel like like someone's gonna take it away Mm -hmm. so i relate to that a lot i think and i think a lot of people will as well just feeling like your space here is temporary yeah 
it's like it, and like you know like those fears are not entirely unfounded obviously like I really I truly hope that like this is something that I get to do for the rest of my life and I will, I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that that's the case but I know that like um a lot of people don't get that opportunity you know what I mean like they have they have a book that doesn't perform as well in the market as they thought it was going to perform or like maybe the advance was too high and they never earn it out so it's harder for them to sell a second book or like you know any number of things that are outside of your control affect your ability to like continue to do this work in the way that like we're doing it now and so it just it's it's really it's really scary um in a lot of ways not I mean if there are any young writers who listen to this podcast I, I imagine it's like a lot of writers writing who are listening to this but for anybody who's not published yet and is wants to publish I don't want to scare anybody away especially not uh like black folks or queer folks or people of color we absolutely need more of us out here hustling and doing the work but um all that to say that it does you know it does feel very much like a dream for for me and so um, I wish somebody had told me, like, Leah, when you get it, hold on to it with both hands and, like, don't let anybody tell you you don't deserve it because you do. That's great advice. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Thank okay. you. And moving on to something a little bit nicer or, like, um, less yes. um, sad or existential. Um, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling very existential right now. Like, obviously, like, for so many reasons. Has got me on edge. <laughs> Uh, I feel this. I feel like it's both the pandemic as well as the just publishing and how uncertain everything is. But happy thoughts. Yes, yes. Okay, here we go. Okay, oh. so firstly, have you ever been prom queen before? Um, no, I was not prom queen. I was actually class clown <laughs> when I was in high school. Um, well, you're actually quite a funny person, so I can imagine why. <laughs> Thanks, thank you. Yeah, I was a real terror in high school, actually. Looking back, I'm like, man, so annoying if I was one of my teachers and now that I'm a professor I'm like if I had had me in my classroom I I don't know I probably would have quit I don't know what I would have done the class clowns are my favorite people like I was always <laughs> I was always just like admiring them from afar I went to an all-girls school um and mm. so I feel like girls are funnier than boys and um oh definitely like they just come up with something that is just I don't know, like the like there was one girl in my class named Abby Girl and she was like the class clown and she would just do so many things that were just so like, I don't know, out of this world. Like there was a time when um she organized this thing for my class. So basically we had to do this exam, like a class test, and um it was a day when it was snowing on and off and so the school said you can come if you live close or you can stay at home and our teacher said to us okay if 20 of you show up then we'll do the test but then if less than 20 show up then we won't do the test and we'll just watch a movie and so we had a class before that and we were all waiting to see um how many of us come in during the day and so um, we were like under 20 and we we're like, yes, we're not going to do the class. And then like five more people showed up. And so Abigail orchestrated a plan where she like, <laughs> she said all of us are going to like stumble into his class at different times with different stories. And so she came in with gl- like <laughs> grass stains all over herself and said, I got attacked um, by like a bear in the forest. And he just said, Abigail, sit down. But she was like <laughs> hyperventilating. 
and really doing the performance. It was, it just, it was amazing. Like that's all I can say. <laughs> you know, class clowns really are the original anarchists. And yes. I think that. <laughs> I think that there's a there's a certain um, credit that should be given to them. Certainly. I agree. And the next question is, what is your favorite prom scene from a movie or a TV show, and why? So this is not a prom scene, but it's a dance scene, and so I'm going to use it. Um, it's the scene from The Perks of Being a Wallflower, yes. where um, they're dancing to... Um, Come on, Eileen. Come on, Eileen. Yes. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. Um, I love that it's song. It's so joyous. That song is literally my anthem. It's like the white people in Scotland's anthem. Um, when it comes on, it's For like... Real? They get like crazy, and I love it. And I'm, I join them. Wow, it must it must be like American white people's um, like sweet Caroline. Yes, like, they really go up for it out here. <laughs> um, I think my one is definitely that as well. Or I liked um, I like a lot of the Glee prom scenes. Mm-hmm. I was a big Glee fan. Um, yeah, I also like the Pretty Little Liars prom scenes because they're so, like, extravagant and, like, there's always someone dying or something. So, right. yeah, I love that. And Give me theatrics. Exactly. <laughs> I'm also jealous because, obviously, we don't have prom in the UK. So I'm always, like, watching from afar at the Americans doing cool things for prom. <laughs> you know, like, prom on TV, uh, and, and this is, like, not... This is, like, not, like, some major secret, but, like, Prom on TV and in movies is always so much better than prom in real life. Like prom in real life is is real messy, but not messy in a TV way. Messy in a like, oh girl, you gonna have to. That's gonna be in the yearbook. Did you know? Like <laughs> you know, like one of those types of things. Um, and also, I remember like my prom. Oh my god. So I was I was a tennis player in high school and was also in. Um, you were a Glee fan, so like I was in competitive show choir in high school, and so um, the same day of prom, we also had our like Mick, which is like the like one of the biggest like choir competitions of the year, and then we also had a tennis tournament that day. So like I had to play all day with my nails done for prom. Like I played tennis with my nails done for prom. I played with like a bonnet on. <laughs> because my curls were pinned up under there and then I had to like rush off the court like as soon as my last match was done somebody had my robe like my well this is actually a concert choir thing um like somebody had my my choir robe waiting for me I like jumped into it hopped in the car drove to another school my brother's graduation was that day oh my god did not make it to that I had to prioritize uh prom over that and then went to um and then ran home and like you know everybody does like dinner before prom and stuff didn't do that my mom had to order pizza to the house because all of my friends require kids too and so we were all running late it was just it was it was like just everybody's frazzled you know you think it's gonna be this dream night and it was just like mostly we were just like really frazzled and very tired we had like um we had a prom like in the uk some schools kind of do like an american thing because obviously we're all enamored by it on tv um, and so mm-hmm. we had a kind of prom, but it's not really. Um, and I was the prom committee head person. And um, I was the only stressed person because obviously I had to run and do all the, the like setup and everything. But like everyone else just strolled in 
happily but actually i think it looks more stressful and more important in america to be honest oh yeah it's um you know i think we put a lot of we put a lot of pressure on prom i mean like you know a spoiler alert for the book like prom the prom scenes are like some of the shortest in the book i think um like very little time is spent at prom itself because the the actual dance is like not the thing. The preparation for the thing is the thing, um, and that's that's what it was like for like me and my friends. I feel like, and probably for a lot of folks uh, over here. And if you could design your prom dress and prom theme, what would you pick and why? Yeah. So my our prom theme was um, a night in Rome. And, of course, none of us had ever been to Rome, um, so we thought it was just the most glamorous thing in the world. Um, the way we had, like, ice sculptures and, like, cardboard cutouts and stuff in there, like, oh, oh my God, the luxury, the glamour. Um, and I would do that again. I think that was perfect for us, like, for a group of Midwestern kids. We were having the time of our life. Um, and if I had to design my prom dress, it would look almost identical to Janelle Monae's Vanity Fair Oscar party look oh in 2018. It was like, she wore what was essentially like a red tuxedo, like a super structured red, black and white look. But like, it had a high, low type of skirt to it. So she was wearing pants, but like there was a skirt over it type of situation with a really long train. Just like very classic Janelle Monet, like, I'm going to give you femme, but I'm also going to give you some androgyny. That's what I would serve at prom if I had to do over. Everything she wears is just brilliant. I loved her. Um, You're the blinking bra. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She, honestly, Janelle Monet really and truly, like, when I, when I, because I, I didn't come out until my adulthood, when I um, realized, like, hey, maybe I'm queer, I really adopted so many of my style cues from, like, early Janelle Monet. I was like, okay, we're going with a lot of, like, black, we're wearing a lot of, like, collars, we're serving the girls, um, a lot of button-up looks, you know, like, she really set these standards. She did, and she's iconic, and I feel like, I really got into her with um, the dirty computer, but I, I've been like researching her looks from before and who she was because I didn't really know Janelle Monae before dirty computer, sadly. And um, oh, wow, okay. yeah, I'm just obsessed with her and everything she does. And I'm, I was meant to see her last year um, in concert, and unfortunately, I missed it. And I still, I still feel really like depressed about that to this day. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't want to rub it in, but I will say I saw Janelle Monáe last year at Lollapalooza, um, uh, Chicago's Lollapalooza, and um, it was, she's spectacular. I mean, I really and truly cannot describe, like, it was transcendent. Like, it's gospel. It's, like, somebody next to me was like, this is gay church, and I was like, oh my God, yeah, it's like, it was she's so great live i hope you get to see her again um i hope so as well i just i think about the fact that i could have gone to gay church and i i missed that because i love i love normal church i'm a muslim but um i i attend some of my friends churches sometimes because it's literally it's a whole performance it's a whole like it's like the food is amazing and i mean black church by the way and um i was like the minute you said 
Um, yeah, so gay church, I need to go sometime to oh, denominate gay church. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you want readers to take away from reading your book? Um, well, a couple of things, but I think the main thing I would like people to take away from the book is that, like, no matter how many people in the world tell you that because of who you are, you don't deserve beautiful things. You absolutely do deserve beautiful things. You deserve to be loved. You deserve to be cared for. You deserve to take up space. And um, that's this like crown is a self-love anthem, you know, and I hope that that's what readers get out of it. Thank you so much. And the last question is, what are three things we can expect from You Should See Me in a Crown? You can expect from Crown a happily ever after. Um, You can expect prom-related hijinks, which are a lot of fun. And you can expect um, a whole lot of love. So there's, there's like, a lot of family um, scenes that are really, you know, warm and fuzzy. And there are a lot of scenes between, like, old friends and new friends. Um, and there's just, there's, there's a lot of love in this book. And uh, so you can expect those things. Thank you so much for being my podcast. Where can everybody find you on social media and your website? You can find me um, at by Leah Johnson, so B Y Leah Johnson on Twitter, Instagram, and that's the same uh, address for my website, byleahjohnson.com. Um, and if you haven't added, you should see me in a crown to your Goodreads TBRs. You absolutely should. And if you've read it and you haven't given it a review yet, make sure to hop on over there and give it a review. I personally would not be reading them, but I, I will know if they show up. So that will be really helpful to me. Um, and also, hopefully, you know, we're, we're all able to carry on our lives as um, planned come June. Um, but if so... Um, then you can catch me on tour. I'll be in New York, I'll be in Nashville, I'll be in Indianapolis, and I'll be in D.C., and I'll probably be at a couple festivals. So hopefully you guys will see each other. I hope that that all goes ahead and that you have an amazing tour. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Any last words for the listeners? Keep writing. Don't don't let anybody tell you that it's not worth it to put good important stories out in the world because it 100 percent is and even though it's hard to break into this industry take my story as an example that sometimes the most unlikely candidates and like most unlikely paths to publication will happen and can happen and so just do the work um and it's worth it and that's it